Coming up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's show, we learn about macoplasty, total knee and hip replacement. So it's really just a tool that we can use intraoperatively to improve the accuracy of the placement. Plus, father and son family practitioners reflect on primary care in a rural area. But we, we make some dedicated efforts to leave availabilities to see our patients on the days that we need them. Um, and that's just that's a practice decision that has been kind of well in place before I started there. And we'll hear about a program developed to address the student's misuse of stimulants. So it's a randomized clinical trial and then we are going to deliver the prevention intervention in the first two weeks of the semester and then we're not going to have any contact with them until the end of the semester. Our checkup from the neck up and a selection from our healing muse and that's all coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting Central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, we explore the future of rural primary care medicine from a father and son team and a new program to address the misuse of stimulants by college students. But first, some new techniques for knee and hip replacements. Well, with more people living longer and wanting to remain active throughout their lives, it's estimated that more than 7 million Americans are living with an artificial knee or hip. And with increasing surgical advances, these procedures are becoming more efficient and less complicated, or having less complications. Here with more on all of this is Dr. Timothy Damron. He's vice chairman of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery. He's the David G. Murray Professor of Orthopedics. He's Professor of Orthopedic Oncology and Total Joint Reconstructive Surgery at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Damron. Thanks so much for coming in. Hi, Linda. So let's start by discussing what are the underlying conditions or problems that cause people to need either a hip or a joint replace, uh, hip or knee replacement? Well, basically, the umbrella of arthritis captures pretty much everything. But within that, there's osteoarthritis, or what most people refer to as degenerative arthritis. And then there's all of the inflammatory arthritis. And those include things like rheumatoid arthritis or arthritis associated with psoriatic arthritis. Um, there's various sorts of inflammatory conditions like that. So the actual, it's arthritis is the umbrella for all of this, but they can be caused by a whole variety of either, it, it could be an autoimmune type of problem or just a, a, a function of aging with yes, osteoarthritis? Yes, most commonly it's uh, aging and wear and repetitive use. It can also be due to trauma, injuries, fractures, that sort of thing. So basically, in, if you live long enough, many of us or most of us will probably come up against this idea of needing some kind of a joint replacement, a hip and or a knee. It certainly becomes more prevalent as we age, mm -hmm. and there is certainly a genetic component to it. So it doesn't mean that every patient that's beyond a certain age will get it, but uh, it certainly becomes more prevalent as we age. But there are other treatments that are more um, conservative than um, actually replacing the joint. What are some of those options for, for individuals who have that kind of arthritis? Well, that's correct. And, of course, always we start with those conservative measures. And those include things like over-the-counter medications, anti-inflammatory medications, analgesic medications, prescription strength medications. Uh, physical therapy always, almost always plays a role. Exercises, maintaining your health, uh, your fitness uh, is, a, is an important role. We do injections as well. Uh, we can do cortisone injections, injections of uh, hyogen-type compounds that uh, increase the lubrication within the joint. Uh, there's also bracing. So there's a number of measures that can be done that are non-operative. Do they also, I mean, there's been talk over the years about this chondroitin and, you know, different kinds of supplements that people can take. Is there any validity to those? There's not very much scientific validity, but there's very little downside except that 
you know, you have to pay out of pocket for those, and they can be quite ex- expensive. What about things like the, you were talking about injections, and is that hyaluronic acid? Is that one of the things? Is that said to build cartilage where there is no longer the cartilage needed? Or, I mean, help us understand that. Well, that was one of the first thoughts, that it would build up the cartilage, but it turns out it doesn't really do that. It just helps with pain relief initially. And actually, there have been randomized prospective studies comparing it to cortisone, and it doesn't really do much better than cortisone itself. So uh, I typically use it in patients that still have some preservation of cartilage so that we don't damage the cartilage with repetitive steroid injections. I see. So now there's this new procedure, or relatively new procedure, and it's for both total hip and partial knee replacements called macoplasty. Can you tell us what that is? Macoplasty is a tool that helps us during either a total hip replacement or a partial knee replacement to help improve the accuracy of the placement of the components. Uh, It doesn't have anything to do with the actual components themselves. The components are just the same. Meaning the prostheses themselves are not any different. That's correct. The same prostheses would be used whether we use the macoplasty procedure or not. Uh, The actual procedure itself otherwise doesn't really differ. The approaches don't really differ. We can use the macoplasty with any approach. So it's really just a tool that we can use intraoperatively to improve the accuracy of the placement of the prosthetic components. So explain exactly what it is then. I mean, it's CT-guided, so it's you've got imagery, very high-resolution imagery, guiding you to do what? or And how is it being guided? So the first step is that... The patient is selected for the procedure, and we feel that they're a candidate for using the robotics. Then we get a CAT scan of the respective body part. So if it's the knee, we do a CAT scan of the knee. If it's the hip, then we do a CAT scan of the hip and the pelvis, and that goes down in the lower extremities. And that is a little bit of additional radiation exposure, but uh, it's a a nominal amount, and it doesn't really increase the risks of uh, having any significant problems. So it's not necessarily simultaneous to the procedure. It's The CT scan is in, in advance of the procedure. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. The CT scan has to be done in advance so that we can template and prepare for the procedure. And just to interrupt you for one moment, you mentioned, you said robotic-assisted, and I don't think we talked about that before. So a key element of this macoplasty procedure is that it's basically the surgeon is sitting at a some kind of a console, right, a little bit like with a joystick, and you are basically <clears throat> doing a robotic procedure. Well, that's sort of the... Um fallacy that people see when they are, you know, told that they're going to have a robotic-assisted surgery. And, you know, you often envision the surgeon sitting in a separate room drinking coffee and, you know, kind of, like you say, using a joystick and performing the procedure. But it's actually not at all like that. It's what we call haptorobotics. So we're actually controlling the instruments. The robot just keeps us in the position so that we do the precise preparation that needs to be done so there's minimal bone loss and so that we keep it in the position that will give us the patient the best function. So the other part of it, after we get the CAT scan, is that that's programmed into the robot. So the robot has the CAT scan information preoperatively. We template and determine exactly how we want to put the prosthesis in so we can look at that preparation before we actually even make the incision. We'll know what size of prosthesis we want to use in, on both sides of the joint, and we'll know uh, what, how we're going to change the relationships of the leg so that uh, after the operation's done, we'll be able to correct that in a very patient-specific fashion. So it takes the guesswork a little bit out of the surgery. Exactly. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with orthopedic surgeon Dr. Timothy Dameron, and we're talking about macoplasty for knee and hip replacements. So let's go to the knee. Who is a, a, a candidate for this kind of procedure? So the patient that's a candidate for a robotic-assisted knee replacement is a much more selected patient than it is for hip replacements. The patient has to be a candidate for a partial knee replacement because at this point in time, we're not ready to do these by total knee, although we will be in uh, early to mid-2017. So for a partial knee replacement candidate has to have symptoms that are isolated to one of the three compartments in the knee, either the inner side, the medial side, the outside, or the lateral side, or underneath the kneecap. 
Now, occasionally, they can have symptoms isolated to two of the three compartments because we can do bicompartmental replacements with the makoplasty as well. If the patient has symptoms and corresponding x-rays that are isolated to that one compartment, then they might be a candidate for the makoplasty procedure. But we always tell them that when we get in there and open up the knee, we'll take one last look at the knee, and if it looks too severe, we always have the option at that point of converting to a more standard total knee replacement. A conventional way of doing it, and then you would just replace it with a full prosthetic knee. Correct, and the full prosthetic knee replaces all three compartments at the same time. So what are the advantages, basically, of doing a partial knee with makoplasty as opposed to doing it the old way? So the knock against a partial knee replacement in the past have, has been that there have been early failures, and those early failures have been attributed to poor positioning and poor alignment. And the makoplasty provides us with a more precise alignment that in, improves that situation so that hopefully in the long run it will improve the longevity of the prosthesis. How about outcomes and how about other, other types of issues like things like the length of time that you're, you're laid up, the pain following it, potential for infections, do any of those things change? Not specifically with the makoplasty itself, but in comparing a partial knee replacement to a total knee replacement, there's a big advantage in terms of recovery. It's a much quicker recovery with a partial knee replacement than with a total. And because we're much more confident now doing the partial knee replacements because of the makoplasty, we can get those patients that need it rather than those that previously might have had a total knee replacement and struggled with their rehabilitation for a longer period of time and get them the right care that they need. So in a way, they're really maintaining their original knee, so to speak, but you're, you're, you're kind of correcting little parts of it that aren't working right. Is that is that a layman's approach? In a sense, yes. We're, again, we're only removing the cartilage and the bone in the compartment that's damaged. We're preserving all four of the ligaments, whereas with a total knee replacement, we're taking at least one or two of those ligaments out. So where is this being done? I mean, is this being done nationwide at this point? Yes, absolutely. It's been done nationwide now for a few years. Um, some people may be familiar with the da Vinci, and I think uh, we're on a very early part of the curve, similar to what the da Vinci was on. Uh, a lot of institutions uh, use the makoplasty now. We happen to be the only one in the Syracuse area that has the uh, tools to be able to do makoplasty procedures. How about um, for hips now? We were talking about the partial knee and why that's an advantage. Obviously, that's a key advantage for anybody who's active and wants to kind of get out there again quickly. I would probably opt for a partial if I could. I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not a candidate at this point, but if I were to become one, I would probably opt for the partial, so I understand those benefits. But how about with a, with a total hip replacement? Who is a candidate for that? So just about every patient that undergoes a total hip replacement is a candidate for use of the makoplasty because, again, it is to align the precision more precisely uh, or align the position more precisely. So the importance of, rep, of uh, improving the position is that it uh, improves stability and it improves range of motion. One of the most common complications after hip replacement is hip dislocation. And so if you have the cup in the right position, then there's less likelihood that that would happen. So go ahead. I'm sorry. And in addition, impingement is one thing that happens if you don't have good range of motion. And that impingement has been associated with early loosening of the prosthesis. So <clears throat> by putting the cup in the right position, then we decrease impingement and hopefully we'll improve the longevity of the prosthesis. And there's some early evidence that that will be the case. Actually, that was my next question was, do these improvements, do these prostheses last longer as a result of the mechanism by which they're placed? Well, only time will tell. It's going to take a long time to really sort that out. But uh, early results suggest that the, uh, the longevity of these is going to be very good. So do you think that these are a vast, that the, the makoplasty allows for a vast improvement over the conventional procedure for hip replacement as well? Well, there's been definite evidence that shows that the position of the component is much more precise and within the safe range when compared to conventional techniques. But how about things like recovery time? You said obviously with the partial knee there's an improved recovery time. Does that also improve using the makoplasty with hips or is it pretty much the same as conventional? No, that doesn't really change. And in fact, none of the complications uh, 
other than limb length and dislocation change. So those are the two potential improvements with use of the makoplasty is the decreased dislocation rate and the more precise fine-tuning of leg lengths. The, decrease, or the difference in leg lengths after total hip replacement is one of the more common sources of litigation and dissatisfaction after hip replacement. And typically with a macoplasty total hip replacement, we can get within three millimeters of the opposite side. So in a sense, it's really a, quite a bit of an improvement. It's a dramatic improvement. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing that with us. I think, you know, many of us, if we're lucky enough to live long, will be facing that kind of a decision. And I appreciate that this new technology is available for us right here in, in this uh, region, in our area. My guest has been Dr. Timothy Damron. He's vice chairman of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery. He's the David G. Murray Professor of Orthopedics, Professor of Orthopedic Oncology and the Total Joint Reconstructive Surgery Program at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Coming up next, the future of rural primary care medicine from a father and son team. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen along with you. Approximately one-fifth of the nation's population lives in a rural area, but only 10% of the nation's physicians are located there. This is considered to be one reason why rural Americans have higher rates of death, disability, and chronic disease than their other counterparts. Here with more on all of this are two family practitioners who know about this problem firsthand. Dr. Robert Ostrander is a 1983 graduate of Upstate Medical University and the current president of the New York State Academy of Family Physicians. He's also been quite active in Upstate's Rural Medical Scholars Program. His son, Dr. Jeffrey Ostrander, is also a graduate of Upstate Medical University, and they share a practice in Rushville, New York. Welcome to you both. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. So let me start with you, Dr. Ostrand, uh, Dr. Robert Ostrander, um, the dad. Um, practicing rural medicine has lots of challenges. Give us just an overview about that. I'm actually going to start by mentioning some of the challenges that are perceived by some but are really misconceptions, especially in this day and age uh, where we have good electronics and good communication. Uh, there's always a perception, often among medical students especially, that if they go to a rural area, they won't have the support that they need. But in fact, um, those supports are largely available except in the most remote areas. Give me an example of the kind of support that you think they might worry about not having that are there. Well, for instance, if I have a patient who has an immediate problem uh, with a headache or stroke-like symptoms, I can get uh, an MR scan of their brain and get them in to see a neurosurgeon, if need be even, fairly rapidly because we have systems in place for that even at our small community hospitals. So your feeling is that some of the things people have seen as challenges, I'm going to get more into some actual challenges that you face, but is re are really not challenges. That's right. We can practice great medicine, state-of-the-art medicine, um, in rural areas, and in fact, often we can combine that with more personalized care than people might get in, in urban centers. Jeff, do you mind if I call you Jeff as opposed to Dr. Ostrander because it's confusing? <laughs> no, that's quite fine. <laughs> so Jeff, what about the declining availability of care? In other words, today it strikes me that we're seeing that in general everywhere in terms of primary care availability in this country. And, and it seems to me from earlier statistics I quoted that it seems a little bit more exacerbated in a rural area. How does that impact you? Sure. So for me, um, I found that practicing in a rural area had lots of reasons to draw me there specifically. Now, the declining care um, for us more in general, a lot of my co-residents when we were in training when you're deciding kind of where to go and where to practice, it's much kind of what we were discussing just previously as far as availability of services, 
um, and then the robustness of the system that you try to practice and, and, and again, that perception that we talked about is, is not always the reality. So you're saying that as you were preparing to do your training, people would similarly voice what your dad was saying, that they're, they might not want to be in a rural area because they would be lacking supports. Sure, yeah. The, the systems that the <clears throat> hospital and the healthcare networks have in place uh, is often, again, perceived as not being as robust. And, and, and really, again, when you've got a well-established practice and a system, it, it really is quite better than but that. But this general concept that we were talking about, Dr. Robert, th this whole idea that um, there is currently a shrinking population of, fa of either family practitioners and or basically internists, primary care doctors in general in this country, that has to have an impact on rural as well. <clears throat> Excuse me, it absolutely does, and I'm going to just touch on the elephant in the room, because doctors, especially family doctors, hate to talk about pay and costs. Um, we live better than our neighbors, better than our patients for the most part, but compared to um, our colleagues in other specialties and our colleagues that practice in um, other uh, settings in primary care, especially hospital-owned systems and large systems in the city, the pay is um, dramatically different. And, and again, I, Jeff was trying to be tactful by not mentioning <laughs> that his uh, fellow residents, um, many of them, are they're offered positions. Family medicine is the most sought after specialty um, in job opportunities in the United States right now. And for most professions, most sought after would mean most pay, but because our pay is fixed by insurance companies and government that doesn't play out, um, it's the most sought after specialty, and systems are willing to pay 20, 30, 50% more than we can make ourselves in primary care because primary care doctors that are owned, if you will, by systems bring all sorts of money into that system. So they're willing to pay a premium. And people are starting their work lives at age 30 with tremendous debt, especially if they went to a private medical school, and what might sound like a very generous pay to a non-physician on the street when you start when you realize that you're starting at 30 with high six-figure mid six-figure debt um, you have to look at what your paycheck's going to be and the paycheck in the rural areas just can't match that yeah. uh, and then the other thing is is although the medical support is tremendous in rural areas the administrative support in a small practice just can't be everybody in my office's job is to take good care of patients um, and now the systems that are in place from insurance company, government programs, and so on require an awful lot of box checking and administration, and we can't afford staff to do just that. Big systems put that in place. I think you're really hitting a point that's even larger in just what's going on in medicine today. I think the reasons that you got elucidated very articulately that there's less people wanting to go into primary care. In general, they're being asked to do more on less and to do more and with less support and, and, and not only do more for the patient, but do more administratively. And obviously the small guy, the, even the private practice, pri private practitioner in a city is facing some of those same struggles. But then add to the fact that you're in a rural environment, basically in private practice, it just exacerbates a lot of those issues. How about the, also the notion of the increased demand in terms of the, you know, the aging population that we're facing everywhere? It's not just, you know, we're living longer and people are, are well longer, but as they age, they have increased medical needs. Jeff, tell us how you think that may be playing a role again and how it impacts on your daily life. Sure. So on our daily life, um, I think the practice that we are in we make a, a specific effort to be able to see our patients not only for their regular and routine care, um, but also make availability for same-day care if necessary. Um, and that's not always the case in all of the practices, I, I think, in general. Um, some of this financial stuff that we were discussing, in order to see a full panel of patients, you want to make sure you book and fill your schedule entirely. Um, and so what happens in that case is that when patients call and say, I need to see my doctor, that availability may not be there. And, and so some of that rolls over into urgent cares and emergency departments. Um, but within our practice specifically, we really try to make an effort to put our patients, um, their care, 
uh, right forward. And so we, we make some dedicated efforts to leave availabilities to see our patients on the days that we need them. Um, and that's just that's a practice decision that has been kind of well in place before I started there. It's a practice decision, but it also requires, and there could be some loss of revenue along those lines if you're leaving spaces open for those same day care and you don't fill them, that affects your bottom line. Am I correct? Absolutely. I mean, the revenue issue, um, uh, and the incentives for providing good care don't match up with where the, the reimbursement is. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm Linda Cohen along with family practitioners, doctors Robert and, jo- and Jeffrey Ostrander. We're talking about rural medicine and the fate of primary care today. So I want to get to why you do what you do. So Dr. Robert, why are you in Rushville, New York? And uh, what about it I grew keeps up in Clifton Springs, which is just uh, a one town over. Both of my parents worked uh, as an x-ray technician and nurse at the uh, hospital in Canandaigua and knew well my predecessor in Rushville, and we knew he was approaching retirement. And when I was done, I spoke with him. He'd been there since 1958. Now I've been there for 30 years. So unlike virtually any other patients, I have many patients my age who have had two physicians in their whole lives. That's amazing. Um, and that's, you know, that's very rewarding. Um, rural communities, um, appeal to me. I grew up in one. Uh, there's a different sense of neighborliness, I think. Um, and probably the most important thing that draws me to rural care, as opposed to primary care, uh, by in and of itself, is the fact that my life is integrated. I don't have a work life and a home life. And doctors always talk about my work life and home life balance. I have a life. And my work life and my home life and my family life are all one piece. My friends are my patients are my neighbors are the guy who fixes my car. And that is the wonderful thing about family medicine in a rural area. Um, it's meaningful and rich. It's challenging. I go to bed every night exhausted, but no one had made a difference. Oh, that's I, I couldn't have wished for somebody to say it better than that. And, and Jeff, why did you come back to work with Dad? <clears throat> sure. Um, so, and that's because I think I grew up in Rushville, I, I went to the school there, and, um, and I've been very fortunate for lots of reasons. Uh, we still have obviously family in the area, um, and I have a good foundation of close friends that I grew up with that have all found something in the area that's kept us all there, and, and so the drive to come back and to return um, was there because of that network of closeness and friends and relationships, in addition to just some of the differences that a rural life brings as compared to an urban one with just a little bit more relaxed, a little bit more laid back, and also the ability to have community and neighborliness, but also privacy and personal space and and to be out and around in nature. Did you always know that you were going to come back to work with Dad? Once Once you chose medicine, did you always know this, or was it a process you went through during your training? I thought there was always a high likelihood of returning home. Um, as far as did I know I was going to come back and, and work in the family practice? No, I mean, I think I started medical school thinking I was going to be a surgeon. And then um, when I went to residency, I knew that I wanted to actually go away and be somewhere else and be somewhere different. Um, but when it all kind of came down to it and I had my chance to be away and, and even briefly for a period abroad, um, there was something about coming home that was appealing I can relate to that. Well, he practiced in New Zealand for six months. That's what he's alluding to. Mm-hmm. And how does that? How did that? Very briefly, I don't. We don't run out of time. But how did that compare to what you're doing now? Oh, that could be a quite a long conversation. But it, that was a wonderful experience. I, I had a great opportunity to practice also rurally in New Zealand as well, working um, in the far north part of the country there. Uh, and it's a different system for sure. But much like we were talking about earlier, they have a very well integrated system as well to help access specialty care. Um, so actually, you didn't want for anything in doing family practice? Well, there. you had to learn to be do things a little bit differently there, but it was somewhat refreshing. So just in the little bit of time we have left, you I know Dr. Uh, Robert Ostrander, you've been very active in the Rural Scholars Program at Upstate, which basically has done a, a very important service of trying to encourage young medical students who are now finishing their training to consider a life in rural medicine. What do you think, in addition to something of that nature, what do you think medical students 
medical schools could be doing to encourage more of this? Very, very briefly, I'm sorry. There's a science around this, and I've been studying it for almost the whole 30 years that I've been involved as part of my work with the academy and my dedication to this. The science tells us that people that are from rural areas tend to return to rural areas, so you have to look at the admissions process, and you have to look at providing a pipeline of qualified students from rural areas to medical schools. Um, exposure to enthusiastic, passionate family doctors um, makes a big difference, so you have to be exposed. Um, we have to fix the financial problems with the way primary care is paid, uh, but that isn't something medical schools can do. Um, and um, student loan forgiveness helps some, but it really doesn't make up the difference because the gap, pay gaps are so high that even a student loan forgiveness in the in the five figures is uh, inconsequential after five years in practice. So the bottom line is you have to want to go back, and I think you've both said enough to have us understand why you would want to go back. So I want to thank you both for coming in and sharing your perspectives. And um, it's a very rich conversation. There's a lot about what you said about community that resonates to me and how we're, we're losing that in life in general these days. So I applaud both of you for your work and your dedication, and thanks so much for sharing it with us. My guests have been Dr. Robert Ostrander. He's a 1983 graduate of Upstate Medical University. He's current president of New York State Academy of Family Physicians. And his son, Dr. Jeffrey Ostrander, is also a graduate of Upstate Medical University, and they share a practice in Rushville, New York. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Hi, I'm psychologist Dr. Rich O'Neill with this week's Checkup from the Neck Up. Question number one, or six words to happier and healthier. Well, folks, I'm just back from a four-day weekend, a really fun get-together with my dearest high school buddies and ladies, bookended by mega to-and-from road trips, supposedly seven hours, but turned out 12 or 13 with bumper-to-bumper, then more bumper-to-bumper, bumper-to-bumper, bumper-to-bumper. <laughs> so late Sunday night, checking Monday's work schedule, I am tired. Of course, Monday is scrunched because undone XYZ flipped from last week's Scrabble board into this week's. You pay before you go and you pay when you get back, right? Anyway, my worker bee alleged mind suggests you could squeeze in X by skipping your morning workout. I always run or bike before I head to my quadrangle in the beehive. Anyway, now, I'd already missed Sunday's run or bike because up at 4, then driving till 6 p.m. And Saturday's run was quick because cook and eat and chat and joke and boat and swim and cook and eat and chat and joke, etc. And then I remembered my old friends. Two packed 40 or 50 unhealthy belly pounds and are edging on type 2 diabetes. Another had been 150 pounds over, did stomach staples, and could only eat like a bird. Another, a long time battle with the bottle, thankfully sober years now. Another, high blood pressure and other stuff with pills galore. And one, a former smoker, had both a heart attack and a quadruple bypass. Serious. Then, listening to that, my worker bee relaxed, and a big picture question number one popped. What's more important than my health? Hmm. Six words. Try them when your mind wants to squeeze in X, Y, Z and skip your walk or run or dance or garden or swim, etc., etc., what if you don't do any of those for the 10, 20, or 30 minutes a day yet? Five words. What's more important than starting? Remember, good health and good relationships link to more happiness as we mature. <laughs> Dr. Rich, I did my run. O'Neill, thanks for tuning in.
Next up, a new program to address the misuse of stimulants by college students. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On Air. Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Recent research suggests that one-third of undergraduate students nationwide misuse or are at risk for misusing stimulants, such as the commonly prescribed ADHD medication Adderall. Here to help us understand a new program designed to reduce misuse prevalence is Dr. Kevin Anschel. He's Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Upstate Medical University and uh, of psychology at Syracuse University. Welcome, Dr. Angel. Thank you so much for coming in. I appreciate the opportunity to come and speak about this important topic. So college students, I guess, it is an important topic. It looks like a fair number of college students, one-third, that's a pretty hefty number, um, of undergraduates are misusing stimulants like Adderall. Help us understand that. Sure, yep. Um, and so this is a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, so compared to 20 years ago, um, this issue really didn't exist on college campuses. And so this is something new. And so the one-third figure that you, um, that you just cited, um, if you split that in half, it's about 17% are already misusing a stimulant, and about 17% of those um, college students are at risk for misusing a stimulant. And so the one-third statistic is, as you alluded to, it's both uh, those that have already misused and those that are at risk for misusing. Um, and what do we think is behind that um, is academic pressure, uh, um, that the motivation for misusing stimulants is very different than it is for other illegal activities. For example, alcohol for college students, the majority of them is an illegal activity, but they don't do that to help their grade point average. And in fact, it usually hurts their grade point average. Um, but we think the motivation for stimulant misuse um, is really quite different than other substances, and it revolves around academic performance enhancement. That's interesting. So it's seen as an academic steroid in some ways. That's exactly how it's referred to. Yeah. So why is access now so easy? Sure. I think, I think there probably are two main, two main avenues. Number one is stimulant diversion, um, and diversion is related to misuse. Diversion is when a person with ADHD who actually has a prescription for Adderall or for any stimulant for that matter diverts the medication. They give it to a friend. They sell it to a friend. Um, and so diversion, uh, we think, explains about half of all the illegal uh, ADHD medications that exist on a college campus. Are there also um, is situations where people actually feign yeah. the symptoms of having ADHD and maybe um, inappropriately get it get a prescription sure. for example? Yep, yep, you actually read my mind. That's about 20%. And so the diversion's about 50%. About 20% of illegal ADHD medications were obtained by malingering, is what it's called. And malingering is the conscious faking of symptoms in order to obtain an external incentive. And then those prescriptions, once given, are often just refilled. Yes, they are, unfortunately. Yeah. I know there's an attempt to control for that because it is yep. a controlled substance. Yep. But the truth is, especially when kids go away to college, their local uh, you know, primary care physician, for example, is in a tough situation in terms of bringing those kids back on a regular basis to check if, in fact, they are truly you know, ADHD. Absolutely. Um, we think that that is a variable that explains or helps to explain why this is more prevalent on college campuses than it is anywhere else um, in the country. Now, in the beginning, you alluded to the fact that this is different. This use of Adderall is really different than the use of alcohol, for example. How about other illegal drugs like marijuana or cocaine or those kinds of things? I mean, those recreational kinds of drugs. And maybe you can just kind of underscore the difference. Sure. Yep. Yep. Um, and so the motivation for all the medic, I mean, for all the drugs that you just mentioned, is to get a high, or to or to obtain some type of pleasant uh, physiologic. Yeah, to feel good. Um, and the misuse of stimulants is different. Uh, the misuse of stimulants isn't to obtain a high. Um, in fact, you look at the data, less than 5% of people that are misusing stimulants will say they do it for the high. 95% will say they're doing it for academic or perceptions of academic uh, reasons. And so it is really quite different. 
Um, in terms of the, the prevalence rate, thankfully the misuse of stimulants is much, um, is much lower um, than alcohol or marijuana or other things that are occurring on college campuses, um, yet it's increasing in prevalence. And so I think that's the public health uh, story Consequence of, this. of it. Yes. Yeah, but um, is it also that um, I mean, when you say it's it, you know for academic purposes, what does it actually do? Is it the idea that they can stay up later and they can study longer? I mean, is it the idea of taking speed, so to speak? Sure, yep, yep. And so we think there are two main mechanisms for uh, the perception. And I'm, I, again, I want to underscore the word perception that it improves your academic. Number one, it allows you to stay up later at night. And number two, it al allows you to focus better. Um, and so uh, if you're staying up later at night and you're able to study more, well, we think in, in turn that has the potential to help you academically um, and then also helping you to focus. And so if you have to study for your organic chemistry and it's hard to focus, having improved focus can help. Um, and again, I want to go back to the, the perception. And the perception, uh, there's been a number of studies that have administered a stimulant um, and also a placebo, and college students perceive uh, the same effects from a placebo than they do from the stimulants. And so we think a lot of this is expectations. It's very interesting because we, I know there's been a lot of stuff recently looked at when they started looking at placebo, the so-called placebo effect, and how powerful an effect it is mm -hmm. in terms of the mind-body connection. So in a way that underscores the power of the expectation Absolutely. as opposed to the actual drug. Absolutely. It's, it's very strong, and that probably carries over to many circumstances and many drugs as well. Certainly. So who's most at risk? I mean, is it the kid who's really trying to kind of, you know, gun for the A's and A-pluses? Um, are, are there kids who are still, are there kids who actually really have ADHD issues or the ones who are just pretending or feigning it? Sure, yep, yep. Uh, if you look at uh, the national data on who is most at risk, Caucasians are most at risk. Individuals that are in a Greek organization, so a fraternity or a sorority, are most at risk. And also individuals uh, that procrastinate. Individuals uh, that will say they have very poor study habits, uh, they wait to the last moment to start projects, etc. And so those three things, Caucasians, members in a Greek organization, and procrastinators, you put those three things together and that produces um, at least a risk profile. That's very interesting, though, about the Greek organization. One suggests to me that perhaps that's a way that things get distributed. Exactly. Because exactly. of that we close think, relationship yes. and people maybe either living in a house together or that, that kind of thing. That one is an access issue. Yes. Access, right. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm Linda Cohen along with psychologist Dr. Kevin Anschel. We're talking about the misuse of stimulants and a new program that he has to prevent it. So let's get some uh, information about this new program. You're trying to reduce this, and um, what exactly have you, what's the mission of your program, first of all? Sure, yep, yep. At the beginning, I wanna uh, let it be known that actually the organization that's uh, um, that's able to give us the funding or providing us the funding Sponsoring it, um, yep. is Shire Pharmaceutical, and Shire Pharmaceutical Company is actually the maker of Adderall. Um, and so I really applaud them um, wow. um, for getting behind this, uh, this effort. Um, and so our effort is primary prevention. Um, primary prevention is something that's delivered to everybody. Um, and so we are targeting um, everyone that's coming uh, to Syracuse University as a freshman. Um, and so this is different than secondary intervention, which we would target only Caucasians or target only people in Greek organizations. We really are interested in a primary prevention. And the reason we're interested in a primary prevention is we would like this to become part of freshman orientation. And so when freshmen at Syracuse University and other, college, uh, and other colleges across the country go away, uh, uh, they have an educational information session on alcohol misuse. They have an educational information session on uh, different types of relationship violence. Um, but there isn't anything that's covered in orientation now about stimulants. And so our goal with this project is to develop a primary prevention program um, that then can be used, again, we're talking five, six, seven years down the road, in freshman orientation. So basically you're developing a kind of a, a, a prototype. That's the goal. And you're trying to do a, a pilot study. Well, tell us more about it. Sure. So what are you trying to undertake here? Sure. And so the project is in two phases, and we actually just completed the first phase. The first phase uh, was to develop the prevention intervention itself. 
and also to recruit and train um, what we refer to as a peer interventionist. A peer interventionist are college juniors and seniors. Um, and it's going to be the college juniors and seniors that are actually delivering this intervention to freshmen. And again, it's primary prevention, and so we want to catch people right at the front door. And it's everyone. We're not everyone. singling anyone out. Not singling anyone out. Anyone that's a freshman is eligible to participate in this intervention. But would they be required? I mean, is that part of your concept? Uh, I'd say that's a long-range goal is to embed it in orientation that I the see. students have to take. Right. Uh, we're not quite there yet. Okay. Uh, um, but um, so... Phase one was developing the prevention intervention. I'd be happy to talk about what's in it. Uh, but phase two is going to be the pilot testing. Um, and so we're going to recruit 500 college freshmen, and we're going to randomly assign them um, to getting our prevention intervention or to what we're calling uh, treatment in quotes as usual, which is essentially there isn't any discussion of stimulant misuse. So you have a control group. Yep, yep. And so it's a randomized clinical trial. And then we are going to deliver the prevention intervention in the first two weeks of the semester, and then we're not going to have any contact with them until the end of the semester. And the reason we're targeting the end of the semester is what we know about the stimulants is they tend to be misused during exam time. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to be contacting them again at the end of the semester during exam week and asking them to complete a questionnaire, have you misused the stimulant? And our hypothesis and what we're hoping for is that the prevention intervention will lead to lower levels of stimulant misuse than the folks who don't get anything. I see. So you'll be looking again against that control where nothing mm -hmm. really was done, and then you can see whether there's been that reduction. So what's involved in the prevention intervention? In other words, there are there are two behavioral interventions that you're using. Can you explain well, there, those? There are uh, two different theories are helping to guide our prevention intervention. The prevention intervention is meant to be brief, and so it's an hour and 15 minutes. Um, so this isn't a four-hour on lecture. One-on-one? Nope, nope. It's going to be delivered in groups. Um, it's going to be delivered in groups of four to five, not large groups, uh, but small groups. And uh, the peer interventionist is going to be delivering uh, the intervention based upon two theories. One is called motivational interviewing. The other is called cognitive behavioral therapy. CBT, which is yep. pretty well known as a technique for doing yep. therapy. Yep, yep. And so motivational interviewing is designed um, to reduce... Uh, people doing the opposite of what you want them to do, uh, which is referred to as reactance. And so if you tell someone that they have to do something, they're less likely to do it. And so we're training our peer interventionists on how to emphasize autonomy. Um, so for example, they tell the freshman, I've got some ideas, and it's completely up to you as if you use these ideas. That's going to be much better than, okay, I've got some ideas, and you have to use them. So the idea is that you're really trying to get the freshman to buy in and sense, have a sense of their own agency in this whole thing, and that they are making the decision and they're making the choice. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's another reason why we're using upperclassmen as, as compared to an old guy like me right. coming in and telling them we're going to use people Peers. that are three years older than them right. that is going to be delivering it. Mm -hmm. And then the cognitive behavioral therapy, the, the CBT part of it, uh, we're actually taking adults' ADHD interventions. And so we're going to be teaching them organization skills for procrastination reduction skills. Um, and again, that's really based upon the data suggesting procrastinators are at risk for misusing. And so we're hoping to equip them with some skills that will reduce the likelihood of them misusing. Well, I think that's very, very exciting. So you're getting the pilot going. It's going currently. It will be going towards the end of a semester. Uh, it'll be beginning late January. Wonderful. What's the timeline really quick before we run out of sure, time? Sure. And so we're going to be running uh, this for three consecutive semesters. So we're going to do spring of 2017 all the way uh, to spring of 2018. And the hope would be that following this, you'd be able to publish or what have you, and perhaps make this a prototype for not just Syracuse University freshman orientation, but this could be something that could be used throughout the country as a, as a that's prototype. That's the goal. Yes, that's the goal. We definitely have bigger aspirations than just helping students here. Well, obviously the problem exists all over, and it mm -hmm. sounds like a very, very, very well-thought-out program. I really applaud you for it. Thank, well, thank you so you. much for coming in and, and sharing it with us and telling us about the sponsorship and everything. My guest has been Dr. Kevin Anschel. He's Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Upstate Medical University and of Psychology at Syracuse University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air.
And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Ithaca poet Tish Perlman hosts the popular public radio show called Out of Bounds. There, she interviews a wide variety of people from the arts, from science, from the university, and from medicine. But in her poetry, she offers sometimes dreamy and sometimes discomforting images of the world that lies just outside our physical plane. I'd like to read two of these poems from our new issue of The Muse. The first is Abundant Shadow for Jean Mackin. You already speak the language of the dead, you who arrived in darkness and left before morning was fully awake. What you most remember, you remember intentionally. How the light fell just so, how November scent is with you still, smoke fires and burning leaves. You need not name the mirage, that silent stretch of road where illusions live, a prelude to what comes after, what comes again. The second poem is called Aftermath. I am convinced that the body was a last minute decision so that the soul would not be forced to wander aimlessly through the world. Death sets us back on course, roaming the cosmos, no end in sight. for joining us for HealthLink On Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we explore glaucoma and what you need to know, plus the urologic concerns of a woman through the life cycle, and a new program to engage people with disabilities with the great outdoors. If you'd like to listen again to this week's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes. Just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings-on at Upstate, you can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog. That's at upstate.edu slash what's up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening. <laughs>